and you don't go into politics either as a candidate or a staff person or a consultant unless you realize that every couple of years, history can break your heart. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Robert Shrum, the famed Democratic political strategist and speechwriter who currently teaches politics at USC and runs their Center for the Political Future. In his days as a political consultant, Bob worked for a who's who of candidates for statewide office for the U.S. presidency and in other countries as well. I was happy to get the chance to talk to him about the challenges we face to democracy in the U.S. right now and how his center fits into that fight. We also talked about his transition to an academic career, about the 2004 Kerry campaign, about speech writing for Ted Kennedy, and about other matters. You should listen. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Bob Shrum of the USC Center for the Political Future. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Bob, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Robert Shrum, I'm the Warshaw Professor of Politics at the University of Southern California, the director of the Center for the Political Future at USC. I was a Democratic strategist, consultant, and speechwriter for decades before I did this. I've always appreciated people who could briefly tell their story like that, especially the people who have very long accomplished biographies and don't need to say it. So appreciate that. I have looked at your best-selling memoir from back in the 2000s, and I followed your career from afar because I care about American politics and you were in the middle of it for a long time. I'm curious how life has treated you post the switch from being a media strategist to more academic life. Can you compare and contrast a little bit the life that you led before and after? Well, I'm not working 14 hours a day for long periods of the year, but I'd have to say that I have been lucky in my life. I have earned a living, a good living, by doing things I love. I loved being involved in politics. I loved strategizing in campaigns. I love the power of words. And I love teaching now and helping to introduce a new generation to the responsibilities, the challenges, and the opportunities of civic engagement and political activism. As someone who's followed politics closely since I went to vote in quotes for McGovern in 1972 with my parents, in the precinct in Boulder that went four to one for him, Boulder, Colorado, unlike the rest of the country, I wonder if you could talk about how things have changed. Because to me, the time of Trump and Trumpism is fundamentally different than it was before. The worries are of a different kind about the democracy and its endurance in a certain sense. Do you feel like there was a time of normal politics and we're out of that? Or to what extent am I right or wrong about feeling that things are substantially different? Oh, you're right. I mean, and one big reason you're right is this. Uh, the telephone, yeah, and the cell phone. Uh, look, all Trump is didn't pioneer all of this. This was happening for a number of decades. Tim Miller, uh, who was a Republican consultant, has written a really brilliant book about what he thinks happened in the Republican Party and why he regrets having been part of it. And obviously, 
if you look at, say, Richard Nixon's campaign for president in 1968, he was pioneering the use of code words. Donald Trump dispenses with the code words. He doesn't care about them. But Nixon was intent on a Southern strategy, was an intent on picking up the people who were angry about civil rights. Lyndon Johnson had warned uh, JFK that if Democrats went ahead with a civil rights bill, which he did when he was president, after JFK was assassinated, they would lose the South for a generation. Well, it was more than a generation. But what's happened that I think is really fundamental and goes to that phone is that we've left the era when Daniel Patrick Moynihan said everybody was entitled to their own opinions, no one's entitled to their own facts. We now live in a world where people can believe whatever facts, quote unquote, they want. Donald Trump has exploited that. I mean, he took an election that he clearly, clearly lost by 7 million popular votes and by the same margin, basically, that he beat Hillary Clinton in the Electoral College in 2016. And he managed to convince 35% of the country, 40% of the country, that it was a stolen election. And so now we are in a very fraught period where I think our constitutional democracy is in many ways on the line. You have people saying that state legislatures should just award the electors to whoever they want, malapportioned state legislators, no matter how the folks in that state vote. Uh, You have uh, the former president of the United States hauling a cache of secret documents, top secret documents, off to his private club and home in Florida. And ultimately, you see the FBI going in there with a search warrant and seizing all of that. And then the former president just lies again. I mean, he says things like, uh, why did Obama get to take 30 million top secret documents to Chicago? Obama didn't get to take any top secret documents to Chicago. And you have a Republican Party, even people that you and I might not particularly agree with, (laughs) I certainly don't, Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, John Thune, his deputy, who just wish Trump would go away. And they don't want to talk about the 2020 election. But you have the so-called Freedom Caucus in the House, which I think will get bigger after the next election because more of these folks will will come to Congress. Uh, And they're all in with Trump. And the warning in most of the primaries, not all of them, Georgia, for example, is a conspicuous exception, is that if you don't cross every T and dot every I exactly the way Donald Trump wants it, then you're going to be in trouble. You're not going to get renominated. And I'm not just talking about Liz Cheney, who, in my view, even though I disagree with her on a lot of issues, uh, in fact, most issues, is a conspicuous profile in courage. I'm talking about folks who just weren't sufficiently loyal to the absurd idea that the election was stolen. We'll see what happens. I mean, I think that the contours of 2022 have changed in the last month or so, two months, three months. You've had three inflection points. One is the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade. Two is the president's unexpected legislative success, which is comparable to the kinds of things Johnson was achieving with much, much bigger majorities in the 1960s, combined, by the way, with gas prices coming down and inflation looking like it it may come under control. And then you, you have a third factor here, which I think is very important for swing voters and independents, people in the suburbs, and that is what I call the mess at Mar-a-Lago uh, and people's reaction to what, uh, what the president, the former president has done. That could, by, by the way, get worse if some other things come out about January 6th, because the Mar-a-Lago mess is about having top secret documents you shouldn't have. But we may find out more about what what President Trump did, or even more significantly, did not do, as the U.S. Capitol was under assault on January 6, 2021. You must have watched how Trump campaigned in 2016 with a very different eye than most people do, because you were a political strategist. 
And he did make some strategic moves as a campaigner that were effective in some of the positions he took that gave him some running room in the way that he labeled his opponents in the primary. It's hard to put aside the deceit, but do you think there are are lessons in political communication from what he did and how he rose up? Well, first, let me say that I, I was wrong in 2016. I did not think he would win. I said on Showtime's The Circus the Sunday before that no how, no way, not in this universe or any other would Donald Trump be elected president of the United States. I said that because I believed that the character issues were just going to be an insuperable block to him. That said, I also worried about one thing, and that was that he was winning the message war, which goes to what you were saying earlier. And I'm not talking about make America great again. I'm talking about two issues specifically. He told a lot of dispossessed folks, people who had seen their livelihood shrivel, seen their towns empty out in the Rust Belt. He told them that this was due to two things, foreign trade and immigration. That was the heart of his message, along with, I will speak for your resentments. I am your voice. I will speak for you about all the things that frustrate you. Hillary Clinton, I think, made a terrible mistake. First of all, if you take her slogan, Stronger Together, it's actually not really about her or what she wanted to do. It's about Donald Trump, that he would tear us apart, which she was right about. Lynn Vavrick at UCLA, who is a really good political scientist, calculated that only 9% of the Clinton ads talked about the economy. That's inconceivable for a Democratic candidate for president of the United States. I think what happened was the Access Hollywood tape came out, and people thought it did enormous damage to Trump, and I think initially it did. But it became a bright, shiny object for the Clinton campaign. And so they never got beyond the ads saying the guy's a bum, he hates women, he mistreats people, all of that stuff to what I think should have been stage two and stage three of their argument. Stage two should have been his business record and how he treated people who worked in his companies, how he left workers out in the cold, how he didn't provide health insurance for them. A lot like the attack on Mitt Romney in 2012, which echoed the attack that in a campaign where I was the strategist, which was Ted Kennedy's against Romney when he ran for the Senate in 1994, to the third part of the argument, which should have been actually, he's economically not going to help you at all. He's only going to help the people at the top. Now, prosecute those arguments. And I think you can shift those small margins in states like Michigan and Pennsylvania and Hillary Clinton becomes president. So, One thing that hasn't changed is that message matters. You have to win the message war. If you don't win the message war, you're probably not going to get elected short of some cataclysmic event or some very odd occurrence. I was a graduate student at MIT in political science when that Kennedy-Romney campaign was going on. Oh, you're aging me. You're aging me. (laughs) I was an old graduate student. (laughs) I remember worrying about Kennedy a bit early in the campaign. And then I watched as, it's a good state for a Democrat, but I watched as the attacks that went against Romney just were very effective and sort of knocked him down. And I think there's something about what you're saying about prosecuting an argument in a campaign that I don't see in a lot of campaigns. When you approach a campaign, like say you were approaching President Biden's re-election, how do you think about how do we construct that messaging so that we can have the upper hand and win in the end? How do you think that through? Well, first of all, in terms of the 94 campaign, your worries were right. The day before the Republican primary, we had a poll that showed Romney ahead by one point. Kennedy ultimately won by almost 20. But we had a very disciplined approach that convinced people that Kennedy genuinely cared about them and would fight for them, and that Romney had exploited workers, fired them, taken away their health insurance, all to make a large pile of money. And it was so powerful because 
the workers told the stories themselves in the ads that were put on television. If President Biden runs for re-election, assuming that he's healthy enough, and I thought he was terrific when he gave that, that speech in Wilkes-Barre, without a teleprompter, by the way, just moving around the stage, assuming he's healthy and assuming the economy is good, I think you're going to have a two-part message. And I mean, I can't give you the exact words, but one part of it is going to be that he's accomplished a lot and here's what he wants to do next. You never want to just say you've accomplished a lot. You want to talk about what you want to do next as well. Secondly, there will be, especially if, say, Trump is the Republican nominee or DeSantis, you've really got to go after them. And you've got to go after them not just on issues that make liberal hearts flutter. You have to go after them on issues that, say, working class blue collar folks care about. It's very interesting to watch John Fetterman running in Pennsylvania because he seems to have a cultural connection with those folks. And he's got a thing on, on, on his website, every county, every vote. And he's going to places where Democrats don't normally go, which used to, by the way, be very Democratic. My grandfather represented one of them in the Pennsylvania legislature in the 1930s and 40s, solidly Democratic, New Deal, now solidly Trumpist because those folks feel they've been left out, left behind, and no one's done anything for them. I think you have to, to talk about your opponent, if the opponent's Trump or DeSantis or somebody like that, in ways those folks will understand, that they're not going to help you, that what they're going to do is help people at the top. And as part of your positive message, when you're reaching out to those people, you have to, you have to tell them, A, what you've done for them, and B, what you want to do. I mean, JFK, who came from great wealth, went into the West Virginia primary and saw people living in conditions he, he said he could hardly ever imagine. And one of the first things he did as president was the Appalachian Redevelopment Act to pour money into those places and to create jobs, not necessarily the jobs we would want now, because some of them were in, in carbon intensive industries. But as a result, West Virginia became a solidly democratic state until 2000. And what pushed it away, but what pushed West Virginia away from its normal attachment was initially guns and the issue of guns, which was exploited by the Republicans. But you kind of talk, for example, about the fact that there's now going to be a new alternative energy factory opening in West Virginia that's going to pay very good wages and where the UAW has a deal with the company that the first jobs are going to go to people laid off from coal mining. And that's all because of the legislation that was passed this summer by Congress to have us invest in microchips and alternative energy. I've heard some people refer to this country as kind of fundamentally a center-right country. And I've heard many progressives maintain that, you know, the polling and a lot of other evidence is that there's a great deal of support for progressive policies. What is your sense ideologically of the country, or can you even say that because only a few people are really ideological? Yeah, most people would not necessarily put themselves on a political spectrum the way, say, you and I would. But if I were to impose that model on the country, I would think this is a center-left to center country with some substantial support on the center-right as well, and obviously some people on the far right and some people on the left. Uh, but I think a lot of the argument that goes on in the Democratic Party is self-defeating and absurd. Joe Biden's a progressive. He's passed more progressive legislation than anyone in a long time. I mean, the only thing comparable to it since the 1960s is passing Obamacare. The notion that somehow or other Democrats are going to move ahead by saying defund the police which Biden specifically disclaimed in the campaign and in Wilkes-Barre and added he's against defunding the FBI, which some of these Republicans are now talking about, or the notion that we're going to suddenly adopt uh, socialized medicine in the form of a single-payer healthcare system. I mean, I just think that's not in the character of this country. This is a more centrist, more diverse country than, than the Scandinavian countries, at least when they put the put their systems into effect. Uh, I also think, by the way, the folks who call themselves democratic socialists would be a lot better off if they called themselves 
social democrats, which is the phrase that's, that's more often used in Europe. Words do have power and words matter. And I think defund the police uh, cost Biden probably a couple million votes and probably cost Democrats a fair number of House seats. You know, the right way to say it is fund the police and reform the police. Fund the police and train the police better. So we saw in a city like Minneapolis where they put on the ballot getting rid of the police department. That's a liberal city. It's not going to pass. People aren't going to vote for it. So if I had to characterize the country, I would say it likes progressive ideas, as I define progressive ideas. I mean, for example, what's just been done to shore up Obamacare, what's been done in terms of infrastructure, what's been done in terms of climate change. But it doesn't like probably the most radical versions of those ideas. And Biden understands that, I think. I think so, too. How do you evaluate the health of the Democratic Party writ large right now and the and the strength of the progressive ecosystem and coalition? The health of the party is getting better for the reasons I talked about earlier. I mean, there's a, politic, a morning consult political poll this morning that shows Democrats with a five-point lead in the generic congressional race. Uh, you know, if that happened, I think Democrats would probably control the House. It's still an uphill battle, but it's not impossible anymore. And both because of that and because of candidate quality and what happened with Roe, what's happening with gas prices, uh, I think Democrats have a very good chance to hold the Senate and maybe even pick up a couple of Senate seats. So in that sense, I think the party's very healthy. Now, are you always going to have inside a political party folks who say, you're not doing enough, you need to go further, you need to push harder? Sure. I mean, uh, Richard Nixon running in 1960 had Barry Goldwater saying, you're not conservative enough. You need to become more conservative, which would not have been a recipe for victory for Nixon. You had folks even in the Reagan administration in the Republican Party who got mad at Reagan because he made a deal with Tip O'Neill on Social Security. He made a deal with Ted Kennedy on immigration reform, and he made peace with the Russians. I can remember my friend George Will, who is my friend, we're, we're not political allies, but who is my friend, actually getting very upset with Reagan over the way he dealt with Mikhail Gorbachev. Because he came, Reagan came to believe you could do a deal with Gorbachev, he turned out to be right. Uh, so you're always going to have folks in the party who think that you're not being hardline enough or you're not being progressive enough. So I think that's a natural state of affairs. Bernie Sanders probably brought that to a boil in 2016 and 2018. But if you look at the results in the primaries, in the presidential primaries, especially in 2020, I mean, Sanders got a lower percentage of the vote in 2020 than he did in 2016. And Biden wrapped up the nomination far more rapidly than Hillary Clinton did in 2016. So I'd say this is a, a progressive party, progressive in the FDR, JFK, LBJ, pre-Vietnam tradition. How do you think about the responsibilities of a political consultant in our system? Do you think that Republican political consultants should work for Republican candidates and office holders who are not supportive of accepting the results of an election or things like that. How do you think about the individual responsibilities of the people who help people get elected? I, I think it would be wrong to work for anybody who is trying to undermine the democratic system and suggest that somehow or other the last presidential election was stolen. People have to look into their own consciences and make their own decisions. But I think I think that would be wrong. I worked for some candidates with whom I had disagreements. They weren't as fundamental a disagreement as, for example, the ones we have now on the health of the democratic system. I worked for, for Bob Casey, the governor of Pennsylvania, who was the father of Senator Casey and who was uh, a right to life Democrat. It wasn't an issue in 86, in 1986, when he ran. It was, we thought, settled law under Roe v. Wade, but he was a right to life Democrat. He also was a person of enormous integrity and a very effective governor of the state. I remember once telling him that he could have much more influence in the Democratic Party if he would just soften his position 
I actually went to Harrisburg to have dinner with him and his wife. I got home pre-cell phone era. My wife said, you got to call Governor Casey right back. I called him right back. And he said, Bob, I just can't do it. It's it's not in me to do it. But if he had said, well, I, I want to become governor so I can figure out how to make sure that a Democrat carries Pennsylvania in the next presidential election, even if the voters vote for a Republican, I could not have worked for him. It seemed like the strategy, if you were running in a state that was more reddish and you were a Democrat, was to separate yourself from the party in the past and get your own sort of independent identity. Nowadays, it's, I think, much harder to do that and to, to create distance. It usually doesn't work. People tried it in 1994 with Bill Clinton after the failure of Clinton care and health reform. And they tried to run, say, on local issues. And most of the people who did that lost. It also feels like collectively you end up having Democrats running against their president and it lowers everybody, it feels like. In almost all cases, it doesn't yield dividends. It doesn't get you reelected. You know why? Because you got a D after your name. And if they're mad at the Democratic president, they'll take it out on you. Or you have an R after your name in 2018, and if people are, are unhappy with Trump, they'll take it out on you. So I, I, it would not be a strategy that I would advise people to adopt. Look, it, it, you don't have to be explicit here. I mean, you don't have to put an ad on saying, you know, I don't care about President Biden, I care about you. But you might say, okay, I'm not going to show up at this one event with President Biden. But then you might show up at a different event. You just make choices. You don't have to become a complete clone of the incumbent president, no matter who he is, which is what happened to a lot of people in the Republican Party. But you can't run away, and right now you shouldn't want to, from what is the fundamental record of a Democratic president in terms of dealing with COVID, COVID relief, infrastructure, investments in chips to make America independent of places like China in terms of microchips, what's just been done on climate to fight inflation, to deal with student loans. I I think you can't run away from that. Tell me about the Center for the Political Future at USC that you've been running for a while. Its mission extends beyond just being an institute of politics. We have fellows. They teach study groups. Barbara Boxer was a fellow. Students got to know her, and and I I have this vision, which we've enforced, that the study group should be small so that the students actually get to know these folks. But we'd like to have an influence beyond the university's gates. It's what the dean here, Amber Miller, calls the academy in the public square. And the idea behind that is that universities used to have a large impact on on public policy, very visible impact. I mean, think of Arthur Schlesinger and the Kennedy administration, and no matter what you, how you regard him, think of Henry Kissinger. And we're not trying to create professors who go out and do that, but we're trying to create ideas that at least model and advance a politics where we respect each other and we respect the truth. So we have programs every couple of weeks. We run some big major conferences during the year. We'll have the Warsaw Conference on Practical Politics after the midterms, where we'll bring journalists and major political actors in to analyze not only what happened, but what this means for the future. We run a a conference in the spring called Climate Forward on climate policy. And when we were first formulating it, I said, I have no interest in a conference where we're going to talk about how the seas are rising and the forests are burning, because we know that. So what I want this conference to focus on and what it has focused on for the last three years is how do you deal with this? How do you begin to solve it? If you have a national administration, which we did for a while, which doesn't care, what can states do? What can localities do? What can the private sector do? What can the Republican Party do? We had a whole panel of Republicans who believe in climate change, believe that this is a problem, talking about how they would approach it and what they would do about it. So we try to have that impact in the public square. We do a lot of other things for students as well. I mean, you know, 150 internships. We provide scholarships in the summer 
for kids who couldn't otherwise afford to take an internship because I couldn't have in college. And I feel very strongly that you ought to, ought to provide some financial resources. And we have a, a generous endowment that helps us do that, specifically earmarked for, for scholarships. We do a lot of different things. And we brought a lot of interesting people to campus. We held a big mayoral debate because we're having a very uh, interesting mayor's contest in Los Angeles back in the spring. We held a major debate between the gubernatorial candidates uh, back in 2018. We didn't hold a debate during the recall because, A, Governor Newsom wouldn't have debated, and B, the recall was never going to win anyway. I think of your center and lots and lots of others as part of the pro-democracy movement, like sort of talking about it, helping to underline the right values and and teach civic engagement and things like that. When you look around at what's going on around the country, a lot of it in response to what's been happening lately, are you optimistic about how that's coming together, teaching the young people, et cetera? I'm more optimistic now than I was a year ago. Yeah, why? I think there's been a reaction to these attempts to undermine democracy uh, among the population in general. I see young people uh, engaging uh, with the political system in a way at a level that no one predicted in a midterm. I think you're going to see a, a pretty substantial vote among young people. And I do have to add one other thing, by the way. We, we, are, we are not partisan. I, I'm the director of this center. My co-director is Mike Murphy, who's a friend of mine, but who also was my opponent in a lot of races over the years as a Republican consultant. We just never were enemies. I mean, you know, we, we'd go out and have dinner together <laughs> with with our wives. I mean, it's not, it, it, it's, and by the way, we have fellows who are Republicans. And in case, in one case, we're having a fellow this semester who worked in the Trump administration, and that's Elon Carr, who was the global representative to combat anti-Semitism and had the rank of ambassador in the State Department and who's going to teach about anti-Semitism in America, or how do we combat the oldest hatred? In our Warsaw conference after the 2020 election, we actually had Mark Meadows, uh, Trump's White House chief of staff, who, who at least in that conference was very reasonable, very willing to talk about the outcome of the election, and did not keep saying that the election was stolen. How do you deal with people who do, who uh, you know are supporters of what you know people are calling the big lie or whatever how do you contend with that because that is a fair proportion of the population maybe not of your students you don't get much of that from students we don't get a lot of that from the broader audience that we now have because one thing i should have said in response to your earlier question was uh covid taught us something which was that we could widen our audience to to way beyond the university's gates by putting things on Zoom. So we had sometimes thousands of people, or in a couple of cases, tens of thousands of people looking at a program that we did. Even there, I don't recall getting a lot of questions about Stop the Steal. My guess is that a lot of folks who actually really, really believe that the election was stolen confine themselves to a very narrow bandwidth of information sources. I would love to be able to reach more of them, not to convert them, but to let them say what they want to say and then hopefully hear out the other side and see if you can have some impact. I want to ask you a little bit about political speeches, because you've said a couple times words matter, and I know that you wrote a lot of speeches, and, and I'm the son of an English literature professor. I've always kind of paid attention to speeches. In fact, I remember listening to the Democratic Convention in 1980. I was about 15. And the speech, which I know you had quite a hand in writing that Senator Kennedy made, it was something that kind of brought down the House. Can you talk a little bit about what you think constitutes a good political speech, how you go about constructing one, and why that one worked in particular? Well, how you go about constructing one, I, I, I don't know precisely. Uh, 
you have to have a, a, what I call a mind's ear. In your mind, you have to hear how the person that you're writing for is going to sound. I would argue that, number one, you don't have to talk down to people. You know, there's this theory now that somehow or other Donald Trump has transformed American political rhetoric forever. Well, somehow or other FDR and JFK and Ronald Reagan and Barack Obama managed to really reach people and have an impact on people without talking down to them. And actually, in many cases, elevating them and enlarging the idea that we as a country have of what we're all about. Secondly, I would argue that a good speech is like a symphony. It goes up and down. It's not just one applause line after another. There are actually moments, I mean, you mentioned the 80s speech. There are moments in the 80s speech where uh, Senator Kennedy didn't want people to applaud. When he was talking at the end about his brothers, which he never talked about, and quoting Tennyson, you could look out onto that audience, which I could because he was convinced the teleprompter was going to break. So I was sitting on the steps uh, right below the podium. So I could, if he went like this behind his back, which meant the teleprompter had broken, I would say 17 middle. And he had a tabs in a hard copy of the speech where he could turn to the middle of the 17th page. But I could watch what was going on. And 20,000 people completely whether they were for Carter or Kennedy, completely mesmerized by the end of that speech. It was partly the occasion, but I think it was also, most importantly, how he rose to the occasion, just rhetorically and in spirit. How much do you think is the delivery, the performance, and how much do you think is the oh, word? Deliver, delivery matters. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, Lyndon Johnson for a while had the help of both Theodore Sorensen uh, and, and Richard Goodwin, who both wrote speeches for President Kennedy, but he didn't have the same impact. I mean, he was a brilliant legislative strategist, the master of the Senate, as he's been called, and he got a lot of that legislation through, but he never connected with the country in the way that some other people have and some other presidents have. I think how you deliver a speech really matters. You've got to have some sense of... of self-deprecation, some sense of perspective. And you have to understand that a speech is not a legal brief. It's not, here's argument one, here's argument two, here's argument three, here's my conclusion. It moves up and down, as I said. It's like a symphony. The ending, that for all whose cares are concerned, et cetera, did you write that part? That sticks in my head. So I, always say, I always say I hoped on the speech. And, and we knew, it, we had a very good sense that, that from the beginning of the drafting process, that which was not very long, actually, that, that we were going to end that way. But uh, Senator Kennedy was extraordinarily generous about giving people credit. And so as he was coming off the platform, a reporter asked him who wrote the speech. And I stayed because we were trying to make sure that our deal with the Carter people went through, that we got two of the three minority platform planks we wanted. And I was in a cab on the way back to the hotel listening to the CBS radio and a correspondent named Trout, who had been one of the famous correspondents of the early television era, was now on radio. And he was talking about the speech and saying that it was largely written by me and by Kerry Parker, who was Senator Kennedy's legislative assistant for a long time. And I got back to the hotel and to save money, Kerry and I were actually sharing had one of the bedrooms in Teddy's suite and there was a little party going on. And I went in and I said, can I talk to you for a minute? And we went in the corner. I said, listen, I just heard this on the radio. I didn't say anything to anybody. He said, oh, I told. I said, what do you mean you told? He said, well, I was coming off the podium and I got asked, you know, who wrote the speech? And I thought if I didn't answer, X would say he wrote the speech. Y would say he wrote the speech. A would say he wrote the speech. And B would say he wrote the speech. So I said, you and Kerry wrote the speech. But I would go a little beyond that and say that was in every meaningful sense of the word his speech. I talked earlier about hearing a mind's ear. It's not just 
understanding how someone sounds. It's understanding what they stand for, what they want to say, and how they want to reach people. So that's as far as I'll go in answering that question. Okay. When you were young, I know you were doing speech and debate yourself and you were good at it. Did you ever think of going down the candidate road rather than the consultant road? And why did you end up the direction you did fundamentally? Well, I think to be a candidate, I would probably have had to move back to California and work my way through California politics. I got the opportunity very early on in my life to play a major role as a staff person writing speeches. Uh, And I liked it. I thought I was having an impact. I admire people who run for public office, but I don't have any regrets that I didn't. I mean, as I said earlier, I, I made a living doing what I loved. And I worked for some of the most extraordinary people in America. Some of them gone now, some of them still in politics. No, I, 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 I actually never really thought about it because I was in New York, then in Washington, was in Washington for a long, long time, never thought about running. You talked about making a living, good living. Part of that is running a business in the space. Were you interested in the part of your, your job that was building a business or were you only interested in the part that was the strategy? Well, I didn't have a lot of interest in building, and some political consulting firms have done this, a kind of bigger business that you can ultimately sell to somebody and that does a lot of consulting beyond politics. I did some. I also worked overseas in campaigns. But one thing that we did, and my partners for the years before I retired, uh, one of them, Tad Devine, uh, did the Sanders campaign in 2016. And the other, Mike Donilon, is in the White House with Joe Biden and is his political counselor. We always kept our firm relatively small, even when we were associated with some other folks who were doing some strategic consulting beyond politics. We, we did the politics part. You didn't run into the problem most of the time that the candidate would call and say, you were the one who came and pitched me. Why am I seeing X and not you? So we stayed small. I suppose it would have been financially smarter to do the take the other route, but it wasn't one that interested me a lot. A lot of what you did was oriented around television. And obviously you, you held up your phone, the world of, of communication by video and audio is just dramatically transformed. If you were going back or if you were advising a new media consultant, what do you think is different and how would you approach that world differently now? Well, what's the same is what I said earlier. You got to win the message war. What else is the same is that even though it's declining in importance, broadcast television is very important. Uh, And the advertising you do on television is very important. This medium is increasingly vital and you have to understand how to use it. And I could go on and on about what's good and what's bad about it, but it is not the dominant way that you're going to communicate with voters at least for another 20 years, I would suspect. As people, my, (laughs) were born when I was age out of the electorate and the electorate becomes dominated by folks whose whole lives have been lived on social media you will have to come up with more and more creative ways. You have to do it now, but you'll have to keep accelerating the process of figuring out how to communicate with folks. But with social media, at one level, it's democratized politics. I mean, you know, John Kerry was able to spend about $250 million before the Democratic Convention because of the money that he raised through social media, a huge amount of it through the internet. Howard Dean gets some credit for that because he started it. And the mistake that we made in in the general, which I was opposed to, was taking federal funding so that we had to run a 13-week general election campaign after our convention with the same $84 million that Bush had to run an eight-week general election campaign. And I think we could have raised a huge amount of money in the general. And no, no Democrat since then has taken federal funding in the general election, and only John McCain has in the Republican Party. Do you draw lessons from that sort of swift boating season that you endured? 
Well, uh, yeah, I mean, one lesson would have been if we if we'd been out of federal funding and not under financial constraints, nobody would have waited ten minutes to respond to that. But you got very worried about running out of money at the end, and there were states that we had to give up at the end. I mean, you know, we had to ch- kind of choose to just walk out of Colorado, where Kerry was actually pretty competitive. You just didn't have an, enough money. The other thing I would say about swift boating is, and this is probably a cliche, but if you if you get that kind of attack, and this was John Kerry's instinct, you have to answer it right away. Now, the problem was, you know, that, <laughs> that in this was tried in the Senate campaign in 1996. Admiral Elmo Zumwalt, who had been chief of naval operations, uh, flew up to Boston and with a whole bunch of veterans stood on the steps of the Capitol and said, I know what happened. I was in Vietnam when this happened. I know that John Kerry earned the Silver Star. I know that he was wounded three times and earned the Purple Heart. This is a lie. Well, that killed the attack. Admiral Zumwalt was dead by 2004. You need to answer it right away. One of the things we wanted to do actually was we made an ad that we didn't use uh, for a reason I'll explain using John McCain and what he had said about Kerry's service to defend Kerry from the swift boating uh, assault. But McCain said if we used it, he would denounce us. I mean, he was worried about his future in the Republican Party. Uh, irony is, I think if, if, you know, it's not a secret that, uh, that Kerry would have been willing to run with McCain in 04, in fact, would have been happily done so. Uh, and I think McCain would much more likely would have become president had he agreed to do that than waiting around to, to be the nominee in 2008 and lose. You've certainly been, you know, central to some campaigns that didn't make it that are that really are heartbreaking for, you know, personally and for the country. How did you deal with that? Well, I mean, 2000, I absolutely believe that Gore won. I mean, I'm not going to talk about stolen elections, but, you know, I think if all the votes had been fairly cast and counted in Florida, it would not have been close in that state. You wouldn't have been talking about 537 votes. The butterfly ballot in Palm Beach County, probably cost us thousands and thousands of votes. Pat Buchanan was not winning a lot of Jewish voters on the Gold Coast, which was what happened if you looked at the ballot and you misread it. You could easily vote for him trying to to vote for for Gore. Well, it'd be a very different world. Uh, How do you deal with it? I think Al Gore dealt with it honorably when the Supreme Court decision came down. You know, there were people who said, keep fighting. What did that mean? What, go into the streets or do the kind of stuff Trump is doing? I think it was the beginning of the debasement of the court. But I, I'm, I'm really talking about you in this case. So, well, how what did I you do? do? Well, yeah. You, know, you move, you, 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 you feel bad. Uh, you move on. You fight for the things you care about. James Carville and, and Stan Greenberg, the pollster, and I started something called the Democracy Corps, which I left a couple of years later, because I signed on to the Kerry campaign. But you keep standing up for what you believe in. You don't give in. I mean, Kerry's situation was heartbreaking in the sense that if you change 60,000 votes in Ohio, he's president of the United States. With Kerry, I mean, I was over at his house, got called and said, I better come back to the war room, went back to what was called the war room, uh, an entirely peaceable place. And uh, and it was clear that Florida was slipping away, but there was still a possibility that Ohio would work. And about two in the morning, it was pretty clear that Ohio wouldn't work. And I went back to my hotel and and wrote a concession speech and took it over to his house in the morning. I thought my responsibility at that point was to help him get through that day. He's a friend, not just a client. I had to help him get through that day. And Ted Kennedy and Vicky were there. Some people, you know, we we did it in Faneuil Hall. And then afterwards, a lot of broadcast folks wanted to talk to someone. And so I thought, well, somebody has to go do the talking. And I want to do it so that 
he's in as good a position as possible. So I did it. But if you're asking me, does it hurt? Yeah, it hurts. And you don't go into politics either as a candidate or a staff person or a consultant unless you realize that every couple of years, history can break your heart. What do you think is the biggest misunderstanding that people have about U.S. politics right now? I think the the low esteem in which politicians are held is pretty much misplaced. Most of the people I worked for were people of conviction. Sure, they had egos. You don't get into this, and you certainly don't run for president, or for that matter, the United States Senate, unless you have a pretty healthy ego. But they believed in things. They stood up for things. They stand up for things. While I might, for example, disagree with Bernie Sanders on some of the positions he takes, not because I don't like universal health care as a single payer system necessarily, but because it's not going to happen. So why, why go down that road? But I admire him for sticking up for what he believes. So, I, you know, I'd say the biggest misconception is that politicians are all in it for themselves. I am worried about what's happened in the Republican Party, where a lot of office holders seem to face the choice of either saying what they actually think or holding on to their jobs. I mean, I think if there had been a secret vote in the Senate, especially on the final impeachment trial of Donald Trump, he would have been convicted. Yeah, I think that's probably true. When I talk to young people, a surprising number to me who feel progressive are not Democrats. They're at least avowedly de-aligned from the parties. It's a little bit of a pox on both your houses. And I find that distressing as a sort of longtime Dem. Well, you have to reach out to them. You have to talk to them. I mean, fortunately for the Democrats, they, whatever their feelings, largely voted Democratic in 2018 and then again in 2020. There is a certain element, I think, of a tendency to be de-aligned when you're young, just to kick up your heels and to say, no, I don't actually associate with either party. But there are values that young people largely have that I think the Democratic Party represents. Not all young people, but the majority of them. And so you've got to reach them. You've got to talk to them. You can't just assume they're going to vote. You've got to work hard at turning them out. We have a, a program here, USC Votes, and all the athletic teams get involved. And we registered an enormous percentage of people in 2020 and saw to it that an enormous percentage of those actually cast a ballot. It's called Vote SC, and it's part of a national effort. But We've been very deeply involved in it, and I'm very proud of it. Another group of people I talk to are sort of what I think of as the tacticians rather than the strategists, the people that are doing the modeling and figuring out who to who to contact and test messages and very detailed, grungy part of politics in a certain way, but you know, vital on the margins. It feels like there's a gap between the big strategy part and that sort of underlayment. Well, you know, this isn't 1960, so you don't just formulate your strategy on instinct. And it should be informed by a lot of both uh, qualitative and quantitative research. Where you can get into a gap, and I think this happened to the Clinton campaign, is where you assume that modeling... Uh, micro-targeting, creating all of these computer models based on past campaigns and the attributes of people is going to tell you what to do or where you're at. I had a great friend, Chuck Campion, who we used to call Mr. Michigan because we bring him out to Michigan every four years. And he would really help make sure the Democratic presidential nominee won the state. Uh, And he went out uh, and he since died. He had three different kidney transplants, and the third one didn't take. He went out to Michigan before the 2016 election, maybe two or three weeks before, and told me that he drove around, he talked to people, and looked at like homemade yard signs that said Trump, and he called the the Clinton headquarters in Boston. And he'd been one of the people who'd been very, very important in saving the New Hampshire primary for Hillary Clinton in 2008. And he said, you're in trouble in Michigan. And they said, oh, no, we've run tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of simulations, and we win almost all the time. 
And he said, well, you better worry about the times you don't, because I think you may be in that situation right now. And the mistake they made was they relied on all these simulations and they didn't poll in those battleground states in the last couple of weeks. I think it was a big mistake. On the subject of polling, do you think that something has gone wrong with that? Do you think it still has as much value as it did when you could reach everybody with a landline call? And Well, yeah, look, to poll right costs a lot of money. There are a lot of media polls that you see all the time. And this explains why in one poll, Fetterman will be 10 ahead and in another poll, he'll be three ahead or four ahead. If you do a poll on the cheap, uh, if you don't make sure that you contact people who aren't on landlines, yeah, the polls isn't going to work. I mean, you're going to get some misleading results. But if you invest the right amount of resources, you can overcome the resistance people have to talking to a pollster, and you can find out what they really think. Our poll in 2020, uh, which is done by uh, the Center for Economic and Social Research here, and was originally done at the Rand Corporation, uh, has a panel of 10,000 people who move in, and people move in and out of the panel, and they get paid for participating. It's anonymous. And we and, and, and the pollster came up with a brilliant question during, actually they had this question before, but it proved brilliantly effective in 2020, which was, if you ask people who they were going to vote for, you would have thought Biden was going to win by eight or nine points. But if you ask people, who are your friends and neighbors going to vote for? You got it about right on the money, right about four points. And I think that kind of polling question will become more important in the future. So that's one piece of it. That's the piece the public thinks about all the time, which is how do you predict the election? The other piece of it is not not what are you going to believe, but how are you going to cast your beliefs in the most persuasive possible way to try to win the election? What's the frame you're going to create? What's the message you're going to create, both about yourself and your opponent? And for that, you have to do qualitative research, focus groups, for example, and you have to do quantitative research. But to do it right, I think there are some media polls that are being done for five or $10,000. I mean, they're, you know, they're not worth the paper they're printed on. What do you think makes, a, makes for a great candidate and a great consultant and a good relationship between them? Well, a great candidate, authenticity really matters. Being in command of the issues and having beliefs, you know, having things you actually really believe so that everything isn't a zero-sum game. I think in terms of a consultant, I mean, having having a real relationship with a candidate, whether you build it quickly or whether it's been there for a while, understanding that you're not the candidate, and having a bond of trust so that, for example, you can do pretty tough kinds of debate prep, say, in a presidential campaign or in the Kennedy-Romney race, and the candidate's not going to get mad at you. Is there a question that you, I mean, I know you've been interviewed a zillion times. Is there a question that you haven't been asked that you would, that you wish you had been? I don't know. I don't think so. I'd have to think, but you should have sent me an email before we did this, and maybe I could have thought a while and come up with it. I mean, people have asked me, you know, what I regret most, I've answered that. Lots of, lots of different questions. Uh, I think I've, I've done enough of these that I've probably been asked everything that's worth asking. What do you want them to say about you uh, in retrospect? That I was a decent person who made a contribution. That's all we all that's aspire what I, to. That's what I hope people will say. Not that I didn't make mistakes. Not that I didn't, not that I did everything right. Not that every candidate I ever worked for was, was ideal, but that I was a decent person who tried to make a contribution to the causes I care about. Well, I'm glad you did that along the way, and the country's better for it. So I appreciate your time today. Anything else you want to say? Nope. That was Bob Schrum. Bob is at Dornsife 
centerforpoliticalfuture.usc.edu. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.